Let me start off by telling you a little bit about why Section 132 provides tension, why it's touchy. We have pushed this issue into a black and white paradigm. Either Joseph Smith was a prophet, Section 132 is of God and likely came at the beckon of an angel with a drawn sword, or Joseph is a fraud, and in order to fulfill his sexual desires, he implemented polygamy for his own purpose. Is there a middle ground? This issue seems to make so many people really uncomfortable. Lots of informed Latter-day Saints truly stuck struggle with the principle of polygamy and truly struggle with section 132. It has been suggested that Joseph Smith doesn't follow his own rules, that wives should be virgins, that he should seek the consent of his first wife when adding a plural wife, and that these women should not already be married to other men, which is implicit in the idea that these women be virgins. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have a discomfort with 14-year-olds being sealed to the prophet a discomfort with Joseph being sealed to sisters, a discomfort with Joseph being sealed to a mother and daughter, a discomfort with polyandrous marriages, and for the one person in the room who doesn't know what polyandry is, it's the marriage to women who are already married to other men, and a discomfort with Joseph's not being honest about the practice of polygamy. Apologists argue that Joseph did follow the rules of 132, but it seems like a fairly big leap when those rules seem to be plain, so plainly stated in section 132. It feels like one is left to throw out one's faith in the restoration or accept 132 swallowing it completely. Is there not some middle ground to explore where one could both disregard section 132 while also remaining faithful to the restoration? Today, I hope to show you that such space exists. And I hope to show you that the church itself has set precedence for that space. Section 132 hinges on divine delivery. Section 132 hinges on the story of an angel with a drawn sword. While there is debate on whether the angel is historical, the strength that 132 has to bind us once we grapple with the messiness of Mormon history seems to hinge on the divine delivery of section 132 at the hands of an angel with a drawn sword, or perhaps even Jesus himself. That without divine imposition having occurred to the prophet Joseph by a messenger of God or God himself, 
that for many of us, our ability to trust such a revelation is deeply diminished. The prophet Joseph himself seemed to validate this as it is he who told some of the women about the angel with the drawn sword in order to convince them of the magnitude of said revelation. That in essence, Joseph himself realized that it was crucial to the convincing of others to tell others of how the message was delivered in order to impose on them just how important it was to enter into the principle. Now, let's start and set the stage by showing that deceiving spirits throughout Scripture have attempted to deceive prophets and even Jesus himself. Throughout this portion of the presentation, I want you to recognize in each of these areas the precedence that has been set. I also want you to set aside your preconceived notions of the stories you've heard. Let's start. In the Garden of Eden, Lucifer is present. He attempts to deceive Adam and Eve. He identifies himself as the God who should be worshipped. In Moses chapter 1, Moses is confronted with the adversary who also tempts him. And then in Jesus' mortal ministry, the Savior himself is tempted by Satan. Again, Satan identifies himself as the one who should be worshipped. One could argue that in each of these cases, the deceiver failed. That God would not and could not allow his prophet to be deceived in such a serious way by the adversary. The fallacy here is twofold. Number one, why would a deceiving spirit make the attempt if there was no chance of God's servant falling for it? You may say that's still an assumption, but I think section 129 of the Doctrine of Covenants, which we'll get to later, makes this point completely valid. Number two, we can show reasonable room that, that some did, that some of God's servants were deceived by evil spirits. That it is in some cases plausible that the scriptural narrative indicates that God's servants were deceived, as well as showing that Latter-day Saint leaders have also shown that they believe God's servants on occasions have been deceived. Let's start with scriptural stories. I'm sitting at work one day. My boss is there visiting with me. Him and I spend a lot of time talking about church. He's, he's a historical nut when it comes to Mormonism. And in the, in the pawn shop where I work, we've got a museum case with a first edition Book of Mormon and other, uh, historical pieces from the history of Mormonism. Uh, in fact, if any of you are looking for the greatest job in the world, come see me after this is over and, uh, and I'll put you in touch with him because it really is a lot of fun. We get a chance to just talk about church and to talk about Mormonism, and to talk about the pieces that don't fit, and, and to consider new ways to make things work. In the process of one of those discussions one day, we're talking about section 132, and asking ourselves, because because of the Van Allens, 
uh, if you're not familiar, Lindsay and, and Kirk Van Allen and their struggle a couple of years ago with section 132. And, and the flack they got from the church as they wanted to simply dismiss that. And as we're having this discussion, we're trying to come up with where's the room here? Where's the room to, to disregard one piece that you simply can't reconcile with your heart and, and still be faithful to the, the gospel in general? And my boss looks over at me and says, Bill, what about the angel? In the Book of Mormon. And I'm thinking through my head of the, of the 52 angels mentioned in the Book of Mormon. And he says, the one with Lehi at the tree of life. And I said, what are you talking about? And, and I've read the Book of Mormon so many times. And yet for some reason, this just doesn't, doesn't come to mind. And so the two of us pull up the scriptures on, on, on the internet and we pull up First Nephi chapter eight. In this story, Lehi is visited by a spirit in a white robe. The spirit in the account leads him for many hours into darkness. Then Lehi in despair prays and God leads him into view of the tree of life. From the point of being told of Lehi's despair in the story, as he finds himself led into darkness, we hear no more of this angel in a white robe. The angel leads him into darkness and vacates. And then God leads him, Lehi, into light and into view of the tree of life. LDS Apologist argue that it is not clear that the spirit is bad. They also argue that other scriptural apocrypha and pseudo-scriptura and other non-canonical texts portray a pattern of prophets and vision, having good spirits lead them through their visionary experience. I acknowledge that. I validate their two points. But I add three points to the discussion. Number one, I have shown the opposite that evil spirits also in scripture come in the appearance of heavenly messengers. And that these messengers attempt to deceive prophets and even Jesus himself. And that such existence permits my interpretation of the angel with the white robe as being just as valid a scriptural interpretation as theirs that this angel is a good spirit. Number two, the story narrative itself seems to make this a valid point, if not the most valid interpretation. If you go back and you wipe away any biases or unobjectiveness that you have, if you wipe away the fact that there were lots of Book of Mormon animated stories that you had when you were growing up, and that those stories had pictures and showed pictures of the angel leading Lehi to the tree of life, That's not what the story says. The angel leads him into darkness. God leads him to the tree. And I think when you look at it objectively, as unbiased as you can, I think you will see that there is a lot of room, if not perhaps the most valid room, to see this angel as a deceiving spirit. 
Number three, my view still encourages encourages us to hold Lehi as a prophet. And that such an interpretation is still a faithful view of the Book of Mormon. In other words, I can't see why the apologist might want to argue against such a view in the first place. Since the LDS Church holds no official position on the angel with the white robe, that such a view is faithful, and that such an interpretation seems at least as valid, if not more so, than any other. Now, let's discuss where LDS leaders have given you such room. The question becomes, in this section, does the LDS Church's view of Scripture and Revelation allow us to dismiss portions that we can't reconcile? Let's start with canonical Scripture. Can we dismiss portions of canonical Scripture as not the Word of God? Is the written canon imposed on us to be taken entirely as the words of God and not just the Word of God? In 1870, Brigham Young shares his perspective on the Bible. An idea of what is scripture. And so let's start with the idea of can we set scripture aside? Like what's actually in the scriptures? Can we just set it aside? Brigham Young is said to, is quoted as saying, I have heard some, and I should say this is in the Journal of Discourses. This, I shouldn't just say this is, uh, Brigham Young is quoted as saying, this is his quote. This is Brigham Young talking. Quote, I have heard some make the broad assertion that every word within the lids of the Bible was the word of God. I have said to them, you have never read the Bible, have you? Oh, yes. And I believe every word in it. It is the word of God. Brigham Young responded, well, I believe that the Bible contains the word of God. In the words of good men, in the words of bad men, the words of good angels, in the words of bad angels, the words of the devil, and also the words uttered by the ass when he rebuked the prophet in his madness. I believe the words of the Bible are just what they are. But aside from that, I believe that the doctrine concerning salvation contained in that book are true and that their observance will elevate any people, nation or family that dwells on the face of the earth. The doctrines contained in the Bible will lift to a superior condition all who observe them. They will impart to them knowledge, wisdom, charity, fill them with compassion, and cause them to feel after the wants of those who are in distress or in painful or degraded circumstances. You can see from Brigham Young that he certainly saw the Bible as the word of God, but he was very careful not to impose it as the words of God. That it was way more messier than that. What about the church today? The LDS newsroom tells us, quote, there is a broad range of approaches within the vast mosaic of biblical interpretation. For example, biblical inerrancy maintains that the Bible is without error and contradiction. Biblical infallibility holds that the Bible is free from errors regarding faith and practice, but not necessarily science or history. Biblical literalism requires a literal interpretation of events and teachings in the Bible and generally discounts allegory and metaphor. And the Bible is literature educational approach extols the literary qualities of the Bible, but disregards its miraculous elements. The church does not strictly subscribe to any of these interpretive approaches. Did you notice that? When the church, when it, when it says that the church does not 
strictly subscribe, it is saying that it does subscribe to each of these, just not strictly. In other words, there's room here, either the church is giving itself room, or it's giving its members room, to use different interpretive approaches within the Bible, within Scripture. So please, notice that the wording of this acknowledges that the church is likely using each of those approaches or is giving you permission to do so. What is scripture? For example, Elder Bednar has claimed on occasion that he is scripture. Such a comment raised the eyebrows of many when he said it, including myself. But when his statement is measured against how Brigham Young here defines scripture, then we see that simply being scripture does not make the words contained necessarily that of God's. Elder Bednar is certainly within reason to claim such when we define scripture in the way that Brigham Young has. Brigham here not only lowers the bar, but also suggests that we learn to differentiate between the word of God and the words of God, and seems to be giving us permission to dismiss certain parts of scripture that we in conjunction with the Holy Ghost cannot reconcile. Just as we should feel free to dismiss a prophet who claims to be scripture when that prophet is not speaking or acting as such. The next part is, can we dismiss a revelation by a prophet? Well, that's easy. The church itself has done this very thing with the 1886 revelation of John Taylor. In this revelation, John Taylor in 1886 writes down a revelation. The revelation exists today, and even Fair Mormon agrees that this is most likely in John Taylor's handwriting. The revelation starts off, My son John, you have asked concerning the new and everlasting covenant, how far it is binding upon my people. Thus saith the Lord, is the next words that hit the paper that we are to assume came from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Notice this. This revelation begins with Jesus Christ talking to President John Taylor in the first person and saying, thus saith the Lord. If I'm not mistaken, this is the last occurrence we have of a prophet sharing a firsthand conversation with Christ. And Christ saying, thus saith the Lord. And yet this revelation has been ignored, dismissed, and forgotten by the church today in a way that most members are not even aware of its existence. This should give great pause and show that there is room to dismiss revelation from Christ to his prophet, even when in the first person. Next. Do we have room to dismiss the doctrines of the church? To hit on this point, I want to talk about the Adam-God doctrine. When speaking of the Adam-God doctrine, which is the idea that Adam is actually Heavenly Father, or at least the Father of Jesus Christ, the Savior of this world, Brigham Young stated how much unbelief exists in the minds of the Latter-day Saints in regard to one particular doctrine which I revealed to them, in which God revealed to me. 
In other words, Brigham was saying that no matter how hard it was for the saints to accept it, he knew it was from God, and hence there was little room to walk back from it. Brigham also stated that some have grumbled because I believe our God to be so near to us as Father Adam. There are many who know that doctrine to be true. You see that? He's also saying that there are others in the community who know from spiritual experiences that the revelation he's received on Adam God and has taught to the people, they also know it to be true. This teaching went so far as to be implemented into the discourse that was to be used at the veil of the temple in St. George, where the saints were to be instructed that, quote, Father Adam's oldest son, Jesus the Savior, who is the heir of the family, is Father Adam's first begotten in the spirit world, who, according to the flesh, is the only begotten as it is written. And yet, modern church leaders and the church itself have disavowed and dismissed and preferred to ignore any reconciliation with such. President Kimball's disavowal of the Adam-God doctrine from General Conference. This is in 1976. This is in October. You can find it in the talk, Our Own Liahona. He says, quote, another matter. We hope that you who teach in the various organizations, whether on the campuses or in our chapels, will always teach the orthodox truth. We warn you against the dissemination of doctrines that are not according to the scriptures and which are alleged to have been taught by some of the general authorities of past generations. Such, for instance, is the Adam-God theory. We denounce that theory and hope that everyone will be cautioned against this and other kinds of false doctrine. Now, it's not only spoken of by President Kimball, but Elder McConkie, in a private correspondence with Eugene England, addresses the Adam-God doctrine in depth. And whereas President Kimball says alleged to have been taught, Elder McConkie gets right to the heart of the matter. In a written private correspondence with Eugene England, Elder McConkie says the following. Listen carefully, as there's a lot in this quote. I also want to say that I am not sharing the quote completely through. You're welcome to go find the quote yourself. I think I am being true to the intentions of Elder McConkie and the words that he uses in the sections that I read here. I'll begin by saying quote, and I'll try to be clear to say unquote when I'm finished so that you can separate Elder McConkie's words from mine that follow. Quote, I am a great admirer of Brigham Young and a great believer in his doctrinal presentations. He was called a prophet of God. He was guided by the Holy Spirit in his teachings in general. He was a mighty prophet. Nonetheless, as Joseph Smith so pointedly taught, a prophet is not always a prophet, only when he is acting as such. Prophets are men, and they make mistakes. Sometimes they err in doctrine. Sometimes even wise and good men fall short in the accurate presentation of what is truth. Sometimes a prophet gives personal views which are not endorsed and approved by the Lord. Yes, President Young did teach that Adam was the father of our spirits and all the related things that the cultist 
ascribed to him. This, however, is not true. He expressed views that are out of harmony with the gospel. I think you can give me credit for having a knowledge of the quotations from Brigham Young relative to Adam and knowing what he taught under the subject that has become known as the Adam-God theory. President Joseph Fielding Smith said that Brigham Young will have to make his own explanations on the points there involved. As for me and my house, we will have the good sense to choose between the divergent teachings of the same man and come up with those that accord with God, that accord with what God has set forth in his eternal plan of salvation. I do not know all the providences of the Lord, but I do know that he permits false doctrine to be taught in and out of the church and that such teaching is part of the sifting process of mortality. I repeat, Brigham Young erred in some of his statements on the nature and kind of being that God is, and as to the position of Adam in the plan of salvation. What he did is not a pattern for any of us. If we choose to believe and teach the false portions of his, of his, this doctrine, of his doctrines, we are making an election that will damn us, unquote. You see, it's crucial to note that Elder McConkie here is saying, yes, Brigham Young taught false doctrine, and that if we believe and teach the false portions of his doctrines, we are making an election that will damn us. That is the very opposite of follow the prophet, even if he is wrong, and you will be blessed for it. You see, Elder McConkie was in a corner. He himself didn't know how to reconcile the Adam-God teachings of Brigham Young. He didn't know what to do. And the only thing he could do was suggest that we not follow the prophets when our heart tells us that their teachings are false. This was the only way that Elder McConkie could work through this. And he certainly doesn't say this in public He only gives his permission privately to Eugene England, but he certainly says it in a way that it applies to everyone. Notice that Elder McConkie seems to give us not only permission to dismiss false doctrines in the church, but a salvific responsibility to reject them or to risk our own exaltation. You see how messy this is in weighing one prophet's teachings and words against another prophet's words, and perhaps even that very prophet against his own words. Many examples, including past doctrines and prophetic teachings surrounding the priesthood ban, blood atonement, teachings on who are the Lamanites, understanding of where the book of Abraham comes from, diminishing positions on cremation, birth control, women working outside the home, all have shifted, diminished, or been disavowed. Things that were once declared doctrine and officially held by all leadership in our church have been dismissed and disavowed as now known to be false or something different. So what are the implications Prophets can be deeply wrong. Elder McConkie says so. Scriptures can be wrong. Brigham Young says so. All 15 men united can be deeply wrong. Just check out the race and priesthood essay. Revelation can be dismissed 
the Adam-God idea. Doctrines can be disavowed. Apologists have argued that Adam-God is not apples-to-apples comparison because it never became canon. In my mind, it seems silly that we would make the exercise of the church in raising its hand to agree to make something canon as the sure and certain way to know that something is really from God or not. Take the November policy, for instance, as an example of something that would they would publicly defend as revelation, and yet it has not been canonized. This also would seem highly illogical and doesn't mesh with Brigham Young's view of Scripture already mentioned. This argument also ignores items that were sections in our canon and have been dismissed as well. The question is, can canon be dismissed? Section 101 of the DNC, which later became section 109, was removed and dismissed. The lectures on faith were part of our canon. They have been dismissed. Apologists argue that such a view of doctrine, canon, scripture, and revelation and prophets throws all certainty under the bus and places everything up for grabs. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is exactly what I'm saying. And it also seems to be what Elder McConkie is saying and what our history is saying. Which brings us to an angel with a drawn sword. Joseph Smith reported that an angel with a drawn sword had commanded him to implement the principle of plural marriage. Brian Hales indicates that there are some 20 different reminiscences of nine witnesses and that Lorenzo Snow and Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner almost certainly heard the account directly from the prophet Joseph. Now, let me pause here. We should, regardless of the position we take on any side of this issue of 132 and Joseph Smith, we should acknowledge that the witnesses reported Joseph to be under much duress as he contemplated how to implement principle of plural marriage and we ought to recognize that Joseph Smith himself indicates that he's under said duress as well Eliza R. Snow said quote he was afraid to promulgate it Helen Mark Kimball stated quote had it not been for the fear of his displeasure Joseph would have shrunk from the undertaking and would have continued silent as he did for years until an angel of the Lord threatened to slay him if he did not reveal and establish the celestial principle. She also said that Joseph put off the dreaded day as long as he dared, unquote. Lucy Walker said, quote, he had his doubts about it, for he debated it in his own mind. And Joseph himself said, quote, Brother Levi, if I should make known to my brethren what God has made known to me, they would seek my life. And he also said, in terms of what many men would respond with, he said, many men would say, quote, I will never forsake you, but will stand by you at all times. But the moment you teach them some of the mysteries of the kingdom of God that are retained in the heavens and are to be revealed to the children of men when they are prepared for them, they will be the first to stone you and to put you to death. 
it was the same principle that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and will cause the people to kill the prophets in this generation, unquote. So this angel with a drawn sword comes to Joseph. Again, nine witnesses, 22 reminiscences, and at least two are accounts where Joseph spoke directly to those people. And then you combine that with the idea that God has given us section 129 of the DNC, where Joseph lays out that handshakes are a way to discern the messengers of God from the messengers of the adversary. Our very present temple practices also hit on this idea of signs and tokens, handshakes, as a way to discern good spirits from bad spirits. So the question we must ask is, is it possible that Joseph Smith was deceived by an evil spirit coming in the personage of a heavenly messenger? That's the point of this presentation today. The question is, could Joseph have been deceived by an evil spirit? It seems entirely plausible from the evidence shared beforehand to this point. And this begs the second question. Would Joseph have thought to ask an angel to shake his hand, considering that an angel came with a drawn sword and with harsh, threatening words? Would you have thought to ask the angel, who comes in a harsh tone, threatening to slay you if you don't proceed, and holding a drawn sword in his hand, would you ask him to pause, sir? Would you mind extending out your hand so that I may shake it, and tell whether you are a good spirit or not? Apologists argue that my line of thinking is invalid, since we also have God's first-person voice in section 132. Hence, we must acknowledge that not only did an angel deliver this instruction, they say, but apparently so did Christ himself, since it is Christ who delivers the actual wording of section 132. But this is a fallacy, and it's one that fair Mormon and other apologetic entities agree with, including the church itself. For example, fair Mormon and the church officially both agree that heavenly messengers can and have come and delivered messages as if God himself was speaking, this is called, quote, divine investiture, unquote. In other words, an angel comes and delivers a message in the first person voice of God or Christ, and the prophet records it as having come from Christ or God himself. Fair Mormon states, quote, there are numerous examples of divine investiture in scriptures. The clearest biblical examples involve angels speaking in behalf of God or Christ. The church in 2002, April, article The Father and the Son says this, quote, And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book worship God. And then the angel continued to speak as though he were the Lord himself. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. 
to give every man according as he as his work shall be. I am Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. As well as in the October 1978 enzyme, I have a question section when it states, quote, Sometimes it seems as if God the Father is speaking, and then it seems to be Christ. Even angels speak as if they were Christ. One could argue that we have no account on record of an evil spirit speaking in the voice of Christ, but that is false. Moses chapter 1 speaks of a visit that Satan makes to Moses to try to deceive him and at one point, Satan cries out, quote, I am the only begotten. Worship me, unquote. While Moses saw right through this, it should be noted that the evil spirit, even Lucifer himself, seemingly can speak as if in the voice of Christ. Lastly, the strongest piece of evidence against such a theory, the theory that Joseph perhaps was deceived by an evil spirit commanding him to implement polygamy? Apologists argue that Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner stands the witness against this idea. And this is, I validate, the best evidence that my theory is untenable. Mary Leitner, in a 1905 address at BYU, stated the following, quote, Well, said I, don't you think it was an angel of the devil that told you these things? Said he, no, it was an angel of God. God Almighty showed me the difference between an angel of light and Satan's angels. The angel came to me three times between the years of 1834 and 1842 and said I was to obey that principle or he would slay me. But, said he, they called me a false and fallen prophet but I am more in favor with my God this day than I ever was in all my life before. I know that I shall be saved in the kingdom of God. I have the oath of God upon it, and God cannot lie. All that he gives me I shall take with me, for I have that authority and that power conferred upon me. Unquote. Let me say here that I find her story believable. I think she's being honest to her memory, and I think it is possible that she may be historically accurate enough that my theory falls flat on its face. But, and that's a big but, consider the depth and richness of the wording that she just conveyed from that conversation. The conversation that she repeats of what Joseph Smith said and the words he used and the sentence structure that just went on. Did you notice how deep and rich and complicated that that exchange of dialogue was between her and Joseph? Now, we should note that when she did this, gave this talk at BYU in 1905, she was 87 years old. 62 years after the event occurred, and she is recounting secondhand what Joseph told her. Could she be mixing memories of more than one conversation? Could she be mixing up the timeline of events? Could she be mixing up things Joseph told her directly with conversations she had with others who were reporting their experiences? 
The LDS Church itself, when speaking on evidence that diminishes faith, that is late word-of-mouth accounts, the Church states, quote, and this is in the 1987 Enzyme, in the August article, The Alvin Smith Story, Fact or Fiction, the Church says, quote, Something told secondhand, 60 years after the fact, is less verified history than it is vague memory. Let me say that again. Something told secondhand, 60 years after the fact, is less verified history than it is vague memory. In the end, we must each dig into the details. We must each make up our minds. The view I presented today is a faithful view that allows one to discard section 132 personally without having to leave the church or lose complete faith in the restoration. Rather, it does, though, compel us that we must leave black and white perspectives behind and gravitate towards more nuanced approaches to our faith. In conclusion, knowing that prophets can and have been wrong, knowing that scriptures can be more nuanced than simply being word for word the mind and will of God, knowing that false doctrine can and will be found among the church's teachings, knowing that angels can come and deceive and have through scripture, knowing that we have disavowed doctrines of the past as racist theories in the here and now, knowing that we have taken sections of our DNC out, and remove them, knowing that we have had revelations from Christ to Latter-day Prophets and we have just ignored them completely, knowing all of that, might we be more open to letting go of the black and white assertions made on both sides and instead leave room for approaches that may be a whole lot messier. Thank you.